And what's going on, everyone? Welcome to the program. It is Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast. I am your host, Garrett Hayden. As always, you can listen to the podcast on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. And you can follow our socials on Twitter and on Facebook. Uh, Before we get going today, I do want to extend a thank you to uh, Evan Greasing, who joined uh, Guest Friday last week. Great conversation with Evan talking about the Red Sox and get their season going on Thursday. Obviously, we'll talk more about that on today's episode, but a great conversation with Evan. Always nice to be able to uh, talk some Red Sox. Great that we have some, uh, you know, real baseball that's going to happen. So very much looking forward to the Red Sox and their season starting. Um, It's an exciting time for uh, all the Boston teams right now. You know, I think... uh, you look at the Celtics and the Bruins, you know, getting ready for the playoffs and uh, the Patriots making some moves that I think are really going to uh, help them this season and beyond. Um, so before we get going, and this is something that I uh, promised on both socials that uh, something different we're doing for Guest Friday this week, I will be uh, opening up the mailbag for the podcast and uh, just doing an episode where I will just answer your questions. So uh, planning later this afternoon to put out a hashtag on Twitter, hashtag AskNYABSP, so you can use that hashtag, ask questions, um, and I will answer those on this week's Guest Friday, which I'm hoping that I will record on Thursday, so I'll probably give you guys till Wednesday night to put in those questions. So you can obviously ask them on Twitter, you can DM me on Twitter, you can DM the podcast, you can message me on Facebook, you can message the podcast, you can, you know, send me an in, a DM on Instagram, and I'll plan to um, put that announcement on Instagram as well. So um, any of those social platforms you want to ask any questions, can be about anything, can be Boston sports, can be, you know, uh, like a national news thing, you know, really whatever you guys want to ask and I'll answer uh, get to as many of those questions as I can for this week's Guest Friday. So uh, looking forward to that and hope get some uh, some great questions. So uh, definitely looking forward to that. So uh, be on the lookout for uh, the like announcement later on uh, later on this afternoon. So all that being said, we're going to get to talking about uh, the Bruins and their uh, recent play, so that's where we'll start today. The Bruins um, will start this week in Columbus. They have four games this week, going to be a busy week for them. Um, and when we last spoke, the Bruins coming off a uh, pretty successful weekend, you know, following their win against Tampa Bay, um, and then they had beaten the Islanders, but then the Bruins obviously run into the uh, red-hot Toronto Maple Leafs, who, you know, pretty much embarrassed the Bruins um, in that Thursday and that Tuesday game last week, um, building a 6-1 lead. Bruins did come back to make it a little closer, but, um, you know, it certainly was not the Bruins' best game. You know, I think uh, Toronto's speed was a big problem for the Bruins, and I think, you know, made too many mistakes to be able to stay in that game. You know, and I think that Certainly, there are a couple of mistakes that you can point to. You know, Connor Clifton was um, kind of the main scapegoat, if you will, made a couple of really bad mistakes um, that led directly to Toronto goals. 
Um, but the Bruins just were, were too loose with the puck, and I think defensively did not really look like they matched up well against Toronto's speed. Um, you know, I will also say, though, that the Bruins seemed to get a little unlucky in that game. You know, I think they hit four posts, had a couple of pretty questionable penalty calls uh, that went against them. Um, and I think also, you know, the Toronto goaltending, Eric Schalgren, uh, who came in after uh, Morazic had played the first, I think he had come out in the first period. It was, I think, soon after the Bruins had scored a goal. Um, but he had played well as well. So I think as much as the Bruins kind of looked to be a step slow, you know, they were getting chances. And I think, you know, probably could have had a chance to win that game if they had capitalized on some of their chances, if they hadn't had the turnovers. But hey, you know, it's one of those games that's going to happen. You know, and I think that I tend to kind of believe in, you know, the overall look of this team over the last few months that, you know, sure, you play bad for one game, but I think the Bruins have, you know, figured out time and time again that, you know, they can follow up these tough losses with good performances, and that's exactly what happened. You know, the Bruins completely dominated the Devils uh, start to finish in that game on Thursday night, and then on Saturday, the Bruins came out with a really good third period and were able to beat the Blue Jackets. So the Bruins have always been able to, I think, rebound from some tough losses. So that was good to see. But I think, you know, that Toronto game is a game that I think it's one of those games you just burn the tape and you say, okay, we made too many mistakes. We couldn't capitalize on our chances. You know, that game is not going to be indicative of who we are as a team. And I think you've been able to see that the Bruins have had some bad losses over the last few months, even as they've kind of figured out their game since January 1st, they've had some bad losses, but they've been able to rebound. Now, are they all rebound games against playoff teams? No, not exactly. But I think at this time of the year, points are points, and it really really is not going to matter who you're getting points against, um, You know, whether it's New Jersey, whether it's Columbus, whether it's a team like Detroit that the Bruins are playing tomorrow. So you know, good bounce back for the Bruins. Obviously, the secondary scoring has been able to return, which is great. Um, but I think just overall, just the response in that Thursday game, just a lot of focus. And I think that that's the most important thing when the Bruins go into these games against teams that are outside the playoff structure, that you just remain focused, you do what you're supposed to do, and, you know, you don't you don't take your opponent too lightly. Um, so it's an interesting trip, and obviously we'll talk more about that in a little bit, but I think, you know, it's important that the Bruins have gotten the depth scoring, the depth scoring necessary recently, you know, and you've looked at three lines that you have right now that are able to, you know, put up points at a pretty good consistent rate. You know, Eric Halla has been a revelation since playing, or since being put on that second line. You know, Charlie Coyle, and Craig Smith have picked up their games. Um, you know, Smith especially has got 15 goals on the season. So, you know, and then you even have someone like Trent Frederick, who, you know, is not someone that you're expecting to put up points every single game. But he is a guy that put in the right position, can put up some points, you know, whether it's cleaning up a rebound or making a nice pass on a two-on-one, which he did for Mark McLaughlin's uh, first career goal on Thursday night, which was a pretty cool sight. Um, unfortunately I was unable to see that live as I was 
uh, recording my interview with Evan, but a tremendous, tremendous uh, golfer for Mark in his first career game. I mean, there's something special about, you know, being able to play in front of, you know, so many family members and not only play, but be able to score a goal. And it just is like, you know, uh, there's, there, there's something wrong with you if you're not uh, feeling something after seeing something like that. So uh, tremendous props to Mark and, you know, hopefully he can get into the lineup. But I think you are now seeing that you have three lines that can, you know, score pretty consistently. And that's not even mentioning Bergeron and Marchand and Jake DeBrusque, who has, you know, picked up his game with uh, goals in four straight games, I believe, coming into tonight. So we'll see if he can keep that going. He's got 19 goals on the season. So, you know, really this is something that I think can make the difference for the Bruins. And I really think that if the Bruins can be able to get scoring like this in the playoffs, there's really there's nothing that they can't accomplish, in my opinion, because I think now that you have Lindholm in the mix, you have McAvoy, you have two elite players on your first pairing, and then you have some other solid defenders like Grizzly, like Carlo. You have someone like Mike Riley, who I think played has played really well since coming back into the lineup. Um, I think that it just gives you a lot more a lot more confidence um, in this team if they're able to score goals and have different guys be able to score goals or be able to factor in the scoring. It makes them a lot more dangerous. Um, and then it, you know, allows you to be able to, you know, put out that fourth line and that fourth line is able to play with energy and play physical, you know, and be responsible defensively. And I think it's, it's shaping up to be a pretty good group of four lines, you know, you think about the, the, the Stanley Cup runs that the Bruins have gone on, 19, 13, 11. Those Bruins teams, you could roll four lines. You can put all four of those lines out there and play them in a lot of different situations. I think if the Bruins can do that, they're going to be a pretty hard team to beat in the playoffs no matter who they play. And I think, you know, for someone like DeBrusque, it's, it's great to see that he's been able to put some goals in. It's kind of wild to think that yeah he's been through a lot this season but he's on the precipice of scoring 20 goals this season which he hasn't done since his second year so it's kind of like wow he's been able to find his game and I think you know not only is it great for the Bruins team because they have another player that they feel like can score goals and score big time goals but it also helps his value that the Bruins could be able to move him in the summer and be able to kind of take advantage of that value and maybe they could even recoup a draft pick that they lost at the trade deadline so that will kind of be curious to see as we head toward the summer um, just one of my just another thought that I had um, on the Bruins going forward is um, the D group and I think you know obviously there's no real concern as to who's going to be in the top four you know it may depend on matchups if Lindholm maybe drops down to the second pair to play with Carlo if Grizzly jumps up to play with McAvoy, you know, maybe if the Bruins are playing a team that's really fast and plays with speed, you know, maybe a team like Toronto. Um, so I think the top four is not something that I think we should be worried about. You know, I think in most matchups, you're going to see Lindholm and McAvoy and then Grizzly Carlo. But I think the real question is, what's the third pair going to look like? And I think the Bruins at the moment have four guys right now who are kind of 
battling it out to kind of have those consistent minutes. Um, you know, I think that the Bruins saw a little bit of what Josh Brown can do. He can kind of be a physical presence, someone who's willing to drop the gloves. I mean, I don't think that he should be an everyday player. You know, I think that he, like Clifton, is someone that you could plug in every other game. You know, if you feel like you need to set the tone, if, if you need to set the tone physically or if you need some of Clifton's jumps, some of his ability to kind of be everywhere on the ice and be able to be responsible enough defensively. Um, you know, Forbert, I think a lot of people don't like him for whatever reason. And I think, um, you know, I, I would say that me as well as a lot of other people are probably confused as to why the Bruins gave both Riley and Forbert three-year deals. But I think Forbert fills a need that he's someone who can kill penalties. You know, I think that the Bruins trust him a lot in their shorthanded situations, that he's another guy that you can throw out there. Um, and I really like Mike Riley. You know, I think that he's someone that should be a regular in the lineup, and I think he has the ability to play the left side, or uh, the right side, excuse me. You know, and I think if you're thinking about a guy who can play his offside, you know, I don't really think that, you know, Forber could play the right side or Clifton and Brown could play the left side. So I think having someone like Riley who's versatile, you know, makes a lot of sense. And I think he's someone that I think if he's involved offensively, there's no reason that he should be out of the lineup. So I'm curious to see, you know, what the Bruins do in terms of that bottom pair in the next few games. You know, I think you heard Bruce Cassidy say that the Bruins do want to get some guys in the lineup this week. When you look at the the, the four games that they have to play, including a back-to-back. So I think there's a possibility you see some different combinations on defense tonight and then Tuesday night against Detroit. So, you know, obviously the first two games of this trip are against teams that are outside of the playoffs, outside of the playoff structure. And the Bruins, you know, typically do well against those teams. So I would think that the same thing continues. Um, Although Columbus did play a really good game against the Bruins, on Saturday, the Bruins kind of really had to work in that third period to get the win. So I think that this is a game that, you know, could be an issue for the Bruins. And I think Tuesday could be a problem because you're playing a second of a back-to-back and you're playing a Detroit team that I think can be motivated, that can get, can get up and down the ice very quickly. And so I'm curious to see, you know, how do the Bruins approach these games? And I think, you know, when you look at where they are in the standings, and we'll take a look at that later, you know, the Bruins are also in a are in a position where they could absolutely still get a position in the Atlantic Division, second or third. The Bruins are only two points behind Tampa Bay and Toronto, and all three teams have 14 games left, so no team has an advantage, and Tampa Bay and Toronto actually play each other tonight, so it's a tremendous opportunity, I think, for the Bruins to be able to, you know, move into that Atlantic Division and kind of be a team that, you know, has a chance to finish in the division and not in the wild card. You know, I think that that's probably preferable for the Bruins to fit into that Atlantic division and not have to play a potential number one seed, whether that's Carolina or Florida or whoever it is. So I think, obviously, first two games of the trip, Columbus tonight, Detroit tomorrow, and then the Bruins will travel 
uh, to Tampa Bay on Friday, and then we'll play an afternoon game in Washington on Sunday. So, you know, you got two teams that are outside the playoff structure, two teams that are currently in the playoff structure, including a team that you very well could play um, in the first round of the playoffs. You know, I think the Bruins, unlike some other teams, don't really have the luxury to, you know, play to a certain opponent. They kind of have to do whatever it takes to finish ahead of Tampa Bay and Toronto. So, Curious to see how they play against Tampa Bay. Obviously, the Bruins beat Tampa Bay the last time they played Pasternak with a hat trick. But I think going on the road, going to Tampa Bay, I mean, it's going to be a playoff environment. I think it's going to be a good test for this Bruins team, and especially going on the road uh, against Washington, too. They're going to be a playoff team. Very unlikely the Bruins play them in the playoffs. But I think anytime you play a team like that, you want to make sure you're, you're up for that game. So... Obviously, Bruins tonight in Toronto or in the Columbus home and home series at seven o'clock, and then they'll play Tuesday seven thirty in Detroit, Friday night at seven in Tampa, and then Sunday afternoon one thirty in Washington, and that will be I think believe that that's going to be the last major road trip for the Bruins this season as they will close the season out with seven six. They will close the season out with six home games and four road games after this four-game road trip. So I think that's it for the Bruins. We'll circle back to them when we take a look at the um, NHL standings as we're getting closer to the end of the regular season. And just a quick update in terms of the Bruins' points this season. Uh, David Pasternak, Brad Marchand lead the team with 71 points each. Pasternak leading the team with 38 goals. Marchand leads the team in assists with 40. Taylor Hall is second, or excuse me, McAvoy is second with 39. And then you have Taylor Hall with 36. But I think it's interesting. You look at some of these guys for scoring depth. You know, Coyle's right there, 39 points. Hall has got 35. DeBrusque, 32. Craig Smith, 31. And I also noticed something interesting when I was uh, pulling up some, some notes for this. The Bruins... I think have an outside chance to get seven guys with 20 or more goals. DeBrusque is at 19, Bergeron's at 18, Hall's at 16, Coyle and Smith are at 15. You have Hall at, Hall at 12. I don't think he's getting to 20, but it's very interesting. The Bruins could be a team that gets potentially seven different guys. I mean, they're at least going to get four uh, with DeBrusque and Bergeron right there, and then Hall's got four to go. Um, but it kind of really speaks to what the Bruins have been able to do the last few months, they've been able to get points and goals from a bunch of different places. So I think that will do it for the Bruins. Uh, we'll move on to talk about the Celtics. Um, the Celtics, like the Bruins, had a really tough loss, uh, or two tough losses earlier this week, a loss to uh, Toronto in which Tatum, Brown, and Al Horford did not play. So the the uh, Celtics, excuse me, um, also played without Robert Williams. So they played without four starters. You know, took the Raptors to overtime. Raptors win 115-112. Um, I was pretty impressed with that game. I know that, you know, you obviously want to win Pascal Siakam at 40 points, but I was pretty surprised, pleasantly surprised, with how well uh, the Celtics bench players played in that game. You know, I think it just tells you that, okay, if things are really, really bad, you can still count on someone like Marcus Smart and Derek White and some of the bench guys to have good games. 
so I wasn't too upset with that game. You know, obviously, you didn't have four of your starters, so it's kind of like you kind of were expected to lose by 20, but the Celtics, I think, you know, still are going to play hard. Um, I think that was evident in that game, you know, and then the Celtics just had a bad game um, against the Heat last Wednesday, 106-98. Really tough game for the Celtics. You know, I think a lot of playoff-style defense, a lot of aggressive doubles. The Celtics, unfortunately, I think, let the officiating um, get in their head a little bit, which is a little bit concerning, you know, when you watch this team sometimes. You know, I will say, though, you know, and this is going to sound really, really biased, but I do think most of the time the Celtics do have a point because it sometimes feels like the game is called differently for Jason Tatum. But, you know, we're not going to get into that. Um, but it just seemed like it did frustrate the Celtics, the way the Heat play defense. It's really not a good matchup for the Celtics. I think the way that they, the way that they play, the way that they guard, you know, they play really, really hard. And I think this is a team that you, the Celtics really need to avoid in the playoffs because I just, it's not that the Heat are more talented than the Celtics. You know, I think the talent level is pretty similar, but I think it's just the way that they play, especially defensively. You know, it lends itself to being really, really good in the playoffs. And I think the Celtics are one of those teams that they think have to do better when they're facing a defense like this. And I think teams are going to try to copy what the Heat did in the playoffs. And I think the Celtics are going to need to be ready for that. You know, Jason Tatum, I think, is going to need to be able to not let the officiating get in his head. You know, they're going to have to move the ball and they're really going to have to do it well, if they're going to miss Rob Williams in the first round and possibly more. So that was a tough loss, but I think the Celtics rebounded well. A couple wins against some bad teams, you know, sounds similar to the Bruins. Um, but I think that those two wins were important. You know, the Pacers made them work really hard on Friday night. Celtics were able to get it done and they crushed the Wizards yesterday. So, you know, I think the, the Celtics, like the Bruins, it's going to be interesting to see how they handle the last few games of the season down the stretch. Celtics have three games left. Um, but I think, you know, just to return to that that heat thing, I think that, you know, unfortunately it does kind of reveal a way that a team could beat the Celtics and playing hard defense and being able to, you know, shut them down. Um, I don't really think, though, that there are a lot of other teams that have the personnel to be able to play the way the Heat, that the Heat do. Um, and I also think the Celtics were really at a disadvantage without Rob Williams as, you know, Bam Adebayo really was able to take advantage of some of the Celtics' defensive coverages um, in that game. So, you know, it's, it's tough, but I think it's a good response that the Celtics were able to come back and put up a lot of points in back-to-back -back games, you know, scored 98 points in that Heat game, 128 against the Pacers, and then 144 yesterday, in which the Celtics were making every single shot. It was amazing. It was like, I'd be fascinated to see what the percentage of threes were, because it felt like the Celtics were putting in three-pointers the entire second half. Um, I take a quick look at their three-point percentage, 52.3%. You had a number of guys off the bench that made a couple threes. Neesmith, White, and Pritchard all made at least three. Or actually, you can put Grant Williams in that category as well as he was four for five. Um, but it was a good kind of feel-good win, and I think great to see the Celtics.
get a win on uh, Fan Appreciation Day, so that was also a plus, too. Um, so great stuff from the Celtics yesterday. I think it's just great to see that you're seeing a team playing at the top of their ability and playing together and playing the way that they should. You know, obviously, losing Rob Williams sucks, and it's not going to be easy, but I think the Celtics did get some good news that the injury is not as severe as it maybe was feared to be, you know, Williams will be out four to six weeks, but it sounds like that might be a little bit conservative, so he might be able to return on the early side, you know, but then again, that's recovery from the injury, that's not reconditioning, so it may take him a couple games to kind of get into the swing of things and kind of be that Rob Williams that we knew before the injury. It's entirely possible that he's not going to be exactly the same guy, that he might be a little bit not as good, not have the explosion, but I think the Celtics are going to be smart about this and, you know, are going to have him play when he's close to 100%. So, you know, the good news is I think he will be available at some point in the second round, which I think will be huge if the Celtics, you know, play against a team like Milwaukee or, you know, whoever's in, I think it's Milwaukee or, or maybe Philadelphia. You know, I'll take a look at the standings in a moment, but I think... It's, it's good news that I think, you know, he'll probably miss the first round, but I think the Celtics are good enough to beat, you know, any of these teams in the first round, whether it's Chicago, Charlotte, Atlanta, Toronto, whoever it is. I mean, I think you'd like to avoid Brooklyn as much as you can, but, you know, I think thinking about those other teams, the Celtics should be able to beat them with or without Robert Williams. So I'm not super uh, concerned about that. I'm curious to see how the Celtics do approach the final three games. They got the Bulls on Wednesday, the Bucks on Thursday, and then the Grizzlies on Sunday. And the Celtics, you know, currently sit a half game ahead of Milwaukee. Um, and I believe that the Celtics can clinch home court advantage in the first round if they win one of their next three, or there's some combination of maybe Chicago and Toronto or whoever losing. So I think the Celtics... It's pretty amazing to consider, you know, where they were a few months ago that now we're talking about home court advantage in the first round um, and possibly even the second round, you know, if things shake out the way that they should. Um, and I think they should if the Celtics are able to win against the Bulls and the Bucks. I think there's a good chance the Celtics will be able to clinch that two seed. I don't think the one seed is possible because I think the Heat are two games ahead of the Celtics and they also have a tiebreaker. So, the Celtics would have to win all three. The Heat would have to lose all three of their games, I'm pretty sure. So that doesn't seem likely. But hey, I don't think anyone's going to complain about the second seed or the third seed. So, you know, I don't think that the Celtics are going to be resting guys in the two games this week. They probably will be on the weekend because I think by that point, the season will probably be, or the seeding, excuse me, will probably be decided. And I believe that Memphis is already locked into whatever playoffs they're in, so they have nothing to play for um, in that game on Sunday. So the Celtics probably will get that game to have some bench guys play, but it'll be interesting to see. You know, I think if I'm the Celtics, I do want to have home court in that second round. The Celtics the second seed, the Bucks the third. And so if both teams advance, the Celtics would have home court advantage. I think I'd like to have home court advantage against... Uh, the Milwaukee Bucks, but I'm curious to see, you know, what the Celtics approach is going to be. You know, I think that 
if everyone's healthy, they're going to be playing. You know, I don't think this is a, a rest situation. I think if you're going to see rest, you'll see it next weekend when they play Memphis. Um, but I think, yeah, the Celtics are going to go out and try to win both of these games. And I think talking about some of the teams that I think the Celtics would prefer to play um, as we take a look at the standings, we'll take a look at the overall standings later in the podcast. But I think as it affects the Celtics, you take a look at where they are, second place, but you have the Bucks and the Sixers that are just a half game behind. Chicago is the five seed, Toronto's the six, and Cleveland is the seven. So it kind of looks like Cleveland, Atlanta, Charlotte, and Brooklyn will be in the play-in unless something crazy happens. Um, it is interesting to note that the Hawks had beaten the Nets the other night, and so they are now a game ahead of Brooklyn with four games to go. And so I think so I think right now the Celtics if playoffs ended today, they would be the second seed and then they would be playing the winner of the seven and eight play in game, whether it's Cleveland or Atlanta. I think that that's a pretty reasonable series that the Celtics could win against either one of those teams. Um, and so then Brooklyn would have to win two games to get the eight seed and then they would likely play the heat, you know, if it goes that far. Um, but the Celtics could also slip into the third seed. Maybe even the four seed. Chicago's the five seed right now. Toronto's the six. So there's still a lot could that could change between Chicago and Toronto, I think. But I think in terms of, you know, ranking the ideal playoff teams that you would want to play, I mean, I think right now the Celtics are in that are in an ideal spot at the second seed, playing a team that, you know, if it's either Cleveland or Atlanta, I feel pretty comfortable with that. I think the Celtics would probably try to avoid Brooklyn in the first round, but if it shakes out that way, so be it. But I think in terms of ranking the teams that I would most like to play, Cleveland, I would probably say Cleveland would be the team that I would most prefer to play just because they're really inexperienced. You know, Jared Allen, I think, is out indefinitely, so there's no word on him. You know, obviously, they're an exciting young team with Garland and Mobley. Um, also, do have Kevin Love, Markin, and, you know, they're a decent team. You know, could become an issue for the Celtics without Robert Williams, but I don't think Cleveland would be much of an issue for the Celtics. Atlanta, you know, is interesting. They, they have played the Celtics pretty well in some games this season. You know, we know what they can do with Trey Young. Um, but they're not a good defensive team. They really haven't been all season. Um, and I think the Celtics would be able to get whatever they wanted offensively um, in a series against Atlanta. I kind of feel the same way against Charlotte. Uh, you know, I think all three of those teams would be the most ideal teams that you would want to play in the first round. Chicago, I think, also is a team that's beatable. They really have not played well in the second half of the season. You know, they're not a great team away from home and really have not been the same team since Lonzo Ball got hurt. I mean, obviously they do have DeRozan, who's had an excellent season, but I think that's also an ideal opponent. You know, I think my least ideal opponent is probably Toronto and then and then Brooklyn. Brooklyn's a team you do not want to play, really, under any circumstances. We know what they can do um, offensively, but I think Toronto also could be a tough matchup, too, um, because I think... They play the Celtics hard. They're a hard-playing team like the Celtics. 
they have a guy in Van Vliet that can take over games with some shots. You know, Siakam, I think, will be a problem against the Celtics, whether whoever they have um, available. Um, so that's a team I think I'd like to avoid. But I think if we're ranking the top three teams that I'd like to play, Cleveland, Atlanta, and Charlotte probably top the list, and then Chicago, then Toronto, and then Brooklyn. So it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out when we talk with you guys next week when the standings will be decided and then we'll taking we'll be taking a look at those play in spots. So I think we will return to the Celtics or excuse me, we'll return to the NBA standings later in the podcast. That'll do it for the Celtics. I think we're gonna jump ahead to the Patriots and uh, yeah, never fear the Patriots have uh, made some made some uh, made some additions, you know, which is uh, kind of like finally to to some people. Um, but I think the Patriots made two really good moves this week. Um, Jabril Peppers coming in on a one year deal. Um, obviously, you may know him from Cleveland and the Giants. He played two seasons in Cleveland. Was a first round pick of the Browns in twenty seventeen. Had two pretty good seasons uh, in Cleveland as rookie and a second-year player. Played 29 games in Cleveland, two interceptions, uh, four fumble recoveries, eight passes defensed, and 137 tackles. And then he had a really good year in with the Giants in 2019 uh, after he was traded for Odell Beckham. Had two really good seasons with the Giants in 19 and 20. Played only six games last year. Tore his ACL after playing in just six games. So, you know, obviously he's a guy that is very versatile. He can do a lot of the things that the Patriots ask in terms of what their safeties can do. So he's a guy who's a safety, but I think can line up in a bunch of different spots. And the Patriots, I think, really like that of their players. I think that he's a player that can help you in terms of a zone defense if the Patriots look to do that more. Um, you know, he's a guy that can also help in special teams. He's a guy that has um, that has past experience returning punts and returning kicks. You know, so you could see him taking on some of those duties that um, Lashevsky had last year. Um, but I think that a guy of his ability, his athletic ability, is really going to help them defensively. You know, if that's what ends up happening if he sees the field mostly as a defensive back. Because I think the Patriots are looking for guys who can be versatile in the secondary, guys who are athletic, who, you know, can play that zone scheme well, because I think you're going to see the Patriots do that against a lot of high-powered offenses. I think Peppers is a guy that fits in really well, and he's a guy who, when he, you know, when healthy, he's a tremendous player. You know, you look at the season he had in 2020, played 15 games, had an interception, 11 passes defensed, a fumble recovery, 91 tackles, which set a career high for him. You know, had three QB hits as well, eight tackles for loss. You know, he's a guy that can really do everything. You know, he can be a similar player to Kyle Duggar, someone that can really line up anywhere. And I think the Patriots... You could get as many guys as you can that are athletic, that can play good, solid defense. That's really all that matters. Um, and then the other deal the Patriots made, they made a trade 
over the weekend, bringing in Devontae Parker from the Miami Dolphins in exchange for a third-round pick next year. The Patriots also receiving a fifth-round pick in this year's draft. So the Patriots now have eight picks in the draft this season. Devontae Parker obviously played previously, or all of his um all of his career in Miami after he was a first-round pick in 2015. He's a guy who obviously has had some injury issues in the past, and I think that last year was no different. Played in only 10 games, started 8 at 40 receptions for 515 yards, uh, but he is just a couple seasons removed from 1,200-yard season um, in which he had 72 receptions and nine touchdowns, which were career highs for him. So I think that, again, like Peppers, he's a guy that I think could fit in really well with this team. I think he's a player that could make a difference offensively, you know, with Mac Jones. You know, I think that he's a guy who I think is not the sexiest name, but I think that he could make a huge difference. You know, he has a season anywhere near the season that he had in 2019, it's going to make a world of difference uh, for this Patriots offense. And I think, you know, this is something that I heard on another podcast, um, is that the Patriots, it might make sense to look in the trade market for a receiver um, and kind of make a low-key trade rather than, you know, bringing in one of the big-name receivers, whether it was, you know, Allen Robinson, Odell Beckham, or whoever it is. You know, I think the Patriots are identifying someone who I think is in the prime of his career. If he can stay healthy, you know, he is going to be a big-time receiver, and I think it also helps their receiver core. You know, now you look at a four-receiver group of Parker, Bourne, Myers, and Aguilar, who I think Aguilar can improve on last season, but I think you have four quality NFL receivers, and I think that is something that is going to really help this offense that they can stretch the field. You know, Parker's a guy who I think can go up and win jump balls, but he's also someone who's quick. You know, he has that ability to, I think, use his size, but he also has the ability to use the speed. You know, you saw the big game that he had against the Patriots a couple of years ago. I think he had like eight receptions, 130 yards, and majority of them were on Stephon Gilmore. So I think he's a guy that if he's healthy, he could be a difference maker for this offense and I think could really give Mac Jones in the offense that kind of, that guy who can be a big time player, you know, and the Patriots aren't going to need to rely on, you know, Bourne and Aguilar on the outside. You know, he's a guy who really kind of makes a difference for what they can do offensively. Um, and I also think he's got an athletic skill set too. He's a guy that can line up in the backfield. He can, you know, you know, be a guy that receives those, you know, jet sweeps or wide receiver screens, you could put him in some gadget plays because I think he's athletic enough to be able to be involved in those type of plays. So I think one of the things that I'm most interested for going forward with the Patriots is how are they going to approach the draft now? You know, I think that a lot of people before the trade for Parker were thinking, okay, they really should draft a receiver in the first couple rounds maybe in the first round. Now I think with the trade, it makes it changes things a little bit because I think now it's 
you could still draft a receiver, but I think it doesn't, it's not as much of a pressing need anymore. You know, you could still draft someone in the fourth or fifth round. You know, you could even sign someone as an undrafted free agent. You know, I think Myers came up that way. So it really kind of helps the Patriots in terms of it doesn't take away a need. I'm not going to say that receivers still not a need because I think I still would like them to bring someone in. But I think it becomes less of a need. You know, I think the Patriots can now focus on the linebacker position. They could focus on bringing in a big-time cornerback prospect. Could they look at offensive line? Because I think with Jack Mason leaving, there's kind of a bit of a hole there. So those are three positions that I think the Patriots, those are kind of the most pressing needs right now. Receiver, sure, you could still draft someone in the third, fourth round. Um, but you could also draft someone late. You could also you know, to take a flyer on an undrafted guy. Um, I think that, you know, there are a lot of options for this Patriot team, but I think, you know, defense and offensive line is kind of the pressing, or cornerback, linebacker, or offensive line is kind of the big need for them right now, if you will. Um, but I think I really like the two moves that they've made. They're not moves that are going to, you know, blow your mind and be like, whoa, these guys are unbelievable players. But if both of these guys are healthy and play the way that they're capable of, you know, these are two guys that could be two of the most important players on this team this year. Um, if they can stay healthy and be able to, you know, complement the offense and the defense, um, respectively. So I think that is probably it for the Patriots. We'll take a look at, uh, at the Red Sox with their season starting on Thursday. Um, you know, it was funny. I was thinking about this yesterday, that I feel like the last few weeks in the podcast, we've just been kind of reiterating a lot of Red Sox things that, you know, it'll be nice when next week though there will be actual games that we can look at and break down. You know, not that the spring training games don't mean anything because, you know, I think that they do, but I think they're not really games that you're like, oh, wow, like, Jackie Bradley has hit a couple home runs. Oh, he's going to hit 25 home runs this year. You know, but I think it just will be refreshing to have real baseball regular season games that we can talk about um, next week. But it's going to be an exciting year. You know, and we talked about this uh, with Evan last week that I think this is a team that you could really get behind, that this is a team that I think is going to be really, really good, you know, assuming that the pitching can stay afloat, assuming that certain guys can can continue what they did last season on offense. Um, but obviously, you got the uh, season opener Thursday night or Thursday afternoon in the Bronx against the Yankees. The Red Sox will open up with six games away from Fenway Park, if I'm not mistaken. I think they have a series in Detroit, a three game series in Detroit. Um, next week, and then the Red Sox will have their home opener on Friday, April 15th against the Minnesota Twins. That will be uh, the season opening series, or the home opening series, I should say. So Nathan Navaldi is scheduled to go on Thursday afternoon, 105 against Garrett Cole. That will be fun to watch, and then the Red Sox are on FS1 on Saturday afternoon at 4 and then they're on ESPN Sunday at 7, so we'll have a couple games that we can talk about um, with the Red Sox season. So I think 
it's very interesting that the Red Sox will have, um, I think, every single series in the first month of the season is going to be against a division opponent. All, all four teams in the division, they actually play Toronto twice. They will play them at Fenway the 19th through the 21st, and then they will travel to Toronto the 25th through the 28th. So you got seven games against Toronto three games against Tampa, and then three against New York. So I think the Red Sox, I think, really want to get out of the gate strong, you know, getting some good performances against some good teams because this division is going to be a dogfight the entire year. Um, And I think getting out on the right foot is going to be huge. You know, getting some wins against good opponents, you know, I think will also kind of force the Red Sox to kind of hit the ground, uh, hit the ground run. It will force them to hit the ground running. Sorry about that. Um, And it will kind of force them to look at some of these teams that, okay, we're going to be competing with these teams the entire season. We better get off to a good start. So I'm curious to see how Evaldi pitches. You know, he's a guy who I think was really good for them the majority of last season, I think, was their best starting pitcher. Um, You know, even when Sale returned, I didn't really think Sale was exactly totally himself, and it's really unfortunate that he's going to miss some time um, into this season. But I think you should feel pretty confident as Ivaldi as your number one. You know, it kind of remains to be seen what the rest of the rotation is going to look like, how consistent are they going to be, but I'm very confident in Nate Ivaldi being that number one and perhaps even remaining to be that number one if and when Sale comes back. Um, But I think based on his performance last year, based on his performance in the playoffs, I'm pretty confident in his ability to kind of get this team off on the right foot. You know, it's just great that you can see Red Sox-Yankees to open the season. I think that's just outstanding. You know, not that other game, other teams, other games aren't as important. You know, the season opener always is a game that has a lot of juice, but when you're playing the Yankees, it just is, has that special feel, and I really hope that we see some more, you know, Red Sox-Yankees action this year that, you know, maybe they meet up in the playoffs, maybe we get some, you know, bad blood between the teams, because I think when that happens, it's really good for the game, really good for baseball. So I'm curious to see how the first series goes. Red Sox have not named a starter uh, for Game 2 or Game 3 against New York. I think that, I would think that Pavetta starts one of these games, um, and it'll be curious to see that the Red Sox throw out Tanner Houck Waka, Rich Hill, you know, whoever it is. I'm curious to see who gets those starts in the next two games. And then the Red Sox will play Detroit in Minnesota. That will be an interesting series against Minnesota um, as the Red Sox will play their home opener and then they will play on Marathon Monday on April 18th at 11 a.m. So that's always a fun game uh, to watch. So I think some games to get excited about. The Red Sox are going to be on national TV in the first weekend of the season which will be fun. Uh, Severino, I think, is going for the Yankees Saturday, and then Jordan Montgomery going for the Yankees on Sunday night. So, you know, not a whole lot of new Red Sox stuff going on right now. I mean, they're not a whole lot of new Red Sox stuff going on right now as they have uh, spring training that is wrapping up. They have a game this afternoon at 1, and then they will close out the exhibition schedule with a game tomorrow at 1. So, one of the things I've been noticing is Jackie Bradley's, you know, been hitting pretty well. You know, he's hit a couple home runs. You know, Devers obviously has been outstanding. 
we all know what he can do, but I think if the Red Sox can get anything offensively from Jackie Bradley, you know, if he can hit 230, 240, you know, that's a huge plus. You don't need him to be hitting a lot of home runs. You don't need to be, you know, seeing him do anything spectacular offensively, but I think if he gives you anything, this team is going to be really hard to beat. Um, and I also think, you know, Dahlbeck is a guy who I think really is going to need to be a big bat in the Red Sox rotate in the in the lineup. Because I'm curious to see what the lineup looks like, you know, without Schwarber. Obviously, they added Trevor Story, but I think Dahlbeck's a guy who, if he can be really good, if he can hit the way that he hit in the second half of last year, um, this is going to be one of the most dangerous lineups in the American League. You know, and we all know what Toronto can do. Um, with some of their additions, but they did lose Marcus Simeon. They did also lose, or no, I think it was just Simeon. Um, but I think, yeah, it's exciting. It's an exciting time uh, to be a baseball fan as the season opens Thursday afternoon. Um, Red Sox at 10-7 and seven in the exhibition schedule, obviously, of games today and tomorrow to close it out. Red Sox had beaten Atlanta yesterday 6-3 um, at, the, at the Braves' uh, spring training facility. So the Red Sox obviously close out the exhibition schedule games today and tomorrow at 105 against Minnesota. So I think that will probably do it for the Red Sox. I think we'll move on um, to talking about another local team, the Revolution. Uh, before we go any further, I do want to extend a... a Congratulations to the Boston Pride, the um, Professional Hockey Federation a team that won the Isabel Cup last weekend, I think. I think it was last weekend. Um, so congratulations to the ladies for winning another championship um, as they're another local team that's uh, pretty dominant and pretty good at winning championships. So they um, hoisted the cup, I think. Last weekend in Tampa Bay, that was where the playoffs were. So, uh, tremendous accomplishment, and it's it's another trophy, another trophy for the Boston Trophy case. So, um, another local team, the Revolution, are back in action. They had a tough loss to the New York Red Bulls on Saturday night. That was their first game in a couple weeks, uh, thanks to the uh, World Cup qualifying break. We'll talk about World Cup qualifying in a moment, but. Um, a tough loss for the Revs, um, you know, a game 0-0 down to the wire, and the Red Bulls get a goal off an own goal. Um, there's a cross into the box, and Andrew Farrell shot it off Matt Polster and goes into the net. So a uh, really tough loss for uh, the Revs, really not the way that you would like to, you know, come out of an extended break. The Revolution um, have not had a win in... Um, Major League Soccer competitions since the uh, home opener against Dallas, in which they won one to nothing. So it's now three straight losses in MLS competitions for the Revolution, um, who have had some trouble late in games. And it's a little unfortunate because that seems to be creeping back in because this was an issue for them a couple years ago, giving up late leads or giving up goals in the second half. Um, but it's, you know, it's still early. You know, I think that's the thing to remember. But I think, you know, this is a team that I think is still is still dealing with, you know, some new players and trying to acclimate them 
Um, but that's just a, a tough loss, a tough way to lose. Um, but I think the Revolution are a team that they have a good group, they have a good core of players that I think are going to figure things out at a certain point. You know, the refs are, uh, well, I think third to last in the Eastern Conference, but I don't expect that to last very long. Um, but just a game the Revs were unable to capitalize on some chances um, and then obviously had a unlucky break late in the game. So they lose to the Red Bulls. Uh, one nothing. Their next game is Saturday next week against uh, Miami, 3 o'clock, I believe. That That's an ESPN game, so you can catch the Revs on national TV. Um, one of the things I thought was interesting is Josie Altador uh, started the game on Saturday night, um, and then I think Buxa came in for him in the second half. So that was just kind of curious. Um, you know, I think if I had it my way, I'd prefer Josie to be playing second half minutes, but, you know, maybe it doesn't really matter. It was interesting to see that the Revs had uh, Kessler and Farrell as their um, kind of, as their central defending um, on Saturday, which I really like. I'm really happy that they put those two back together because I think that's what it needs to be. You know, I think Gonzalez is Gonzalez, and I think he has the ability to be a good voice in that locker room, you know, a guy with championship experience, but he's not a guy that should be playing every game. And I think that the Revolution need to be able to establish some consistency with Farrell and Kessler in that central defending um, unit. So obviously not a great start for the Revs, but we're just five games in. There certainly are a lot of things that can change. Uh, it was curious to me that the Revolution gave Brad Knighton a start on Saturday night. Earl Edwards had started the majority of the games to start the season, with Matt Turner still dealing with an injury. Um, but I will say Knighton did look pretty good. He made some big saves, um, especially in the second half against New York. Um, so that was that was interesting to me. You know, I'm curious to see if that was kind of a showcase game to see if the Revolution can, you know, rely on him to be a regular uh, regular goalie, you know, once Turner goes to England. Um, but I thought that he played really well. You know, obviously nothing he could do on that goal that the Red Bulls scored, um, or that the Revolution scored against themselves, I should say. Um, but I thought that he looked really good. I thought looked like a goalie who could be, you know, a decent backstopper for the Revolution, you know, the rest of the year or whenever Turner goes to England. So I think just the other part of it, the Revolution need to find some consistency in the attacking half. They have not had much success goal scoring, I think particularly in Major League Soccer over the last over the last couple games. Um, but I think obviously trying to acclimate Sebastian Leggett and, you know, some new pieces into the offense. It's going to take a bit, but I think the rhythm needs to kind of, it needs it needs to get there at some point um, because the Revolution, I think, really can't afford to keep losing games. You know, it's going to need to be something that they're going to need to be a lot better with consistency and finishing. And, you know, we all obviously know that Carlos Heel was the MLS MVP last year. Um, and is a tremendous player, but the Revs need guys who can finish. And I think, you know, Buxa is a guy who I think you need to see more from. Josie Altador, you got to see him scoring some goals. Um, 
So curious to see, you know, what goes on the next few weeks. I mean, hopefully with the Revolution kind of getting the Champions League and some of the breaks out of their system, they can start to get some consistency in games going forward. So maybe you see the offense improving um, over the next few games. So I think we'll move on, get into some other stuff that's going on. The uh, U.S. men last week officially qualified for the 2022 World Cup in Qatar with a uh, 2-0 loss to Costa Rica, but the the U.S. was able to advance thanks to their goal differential. Um, So the U.S. going through as they finished third in the World Cup qualifying um, CONCACAF uh, group, whatever you want to say, and Costa Rica, I believe, goes into a intercontinental playoff. Um, And then the U.S. learned where they were drew in terms of the World Cup grouping. So the U.S. is in Group B and will be playing against England, who they faced off against in 2010. I believe they were in the same group in 2010. I believe they tied that game, if I'm not mistaken. So curious to see how they play against them. They will also be in a group where they will... The group also includes Iran and then a winner of a European playoff, I believe. Um, so I believe Scotland and Ukraine will play in June, and then the winner of that game will play Wales, and then the winner of that game will be the fourth group into Group B. So I think just kind of overall, it's not a bad, it's not not a bad drawing for. Uh, Team USA. You know, I think that England is a good team, but I think that they're beatable. You know, I think Team USA, the best that they, the the best that they're capable of, you know, is a team that I think could absolutely go toe-to-toe with England, maybe even beat them. But I think getting some of these other teams, you know, Team USA really shouldn't have much of an issue getting through the group. You know, obviously a lot can change between now and November. Um, and actually, I should note that the World Cup is in November this year. Because I believe the summer months would be too dangerous to play in the Middle East, just considering with the heat. Um, so I think that's why the tournament is in November. So it will take place the week of Thanksgiving. So Team USA's first game will be against the European playoff team and then they'll play against England on Black Friday and then they'll close the group against Iran so it's a solid group you know no real kind of group of death so to speak in any of the groups I think if you watch the drawing on on Friday in terms of which group what teams will go into I mean I'm certainly there are some groups that are going to be tough but it really wasn't any group where you're like oh wow that's going to be a ridiculous group where maybe you had like three really good teams and you're like, okay, one of these teams is not going to make it through. So I think it's a good draw for Team USA and I think it's reasonable to expect that they could get out of the group, but um, obviously a lot can change between now and then. I believe the Team USA will have some tune-up games um, or games that they'll play between now and November. So that will be interesting to see, you know, what they do in terms of lineup groupings and that sort of thing. So congratulations Team USA through to the World Cup. 
Uh, obviously missed it in 2018, but great to see that they are back. So I think we'll move on, talk a little bit about some college basketball, give kind of a March Madness recap, so to speak. Um, the women's championship was last night, South Carolina defeating UConn 64-49. to Really a tremendous wire-to-wire -wire win uh, for South Carolina. They were um, the better team in the entire throughout the game. Um, just such a team that just was so dominant, and I think you know had a lot of reason to be motivated going into this tournament. You know, if you remember last year, they lost in the Final Four semifinal game to Stanford um, as Aaliyah Boston missed a tip in at the buzzer and so i think this is a team that was really highly motivated and i think we're not going to be satisfied until they won that championship and they certainly showed it last night um 21 offensive rebounds they just were dominant on the glass um, and uconn really just kind of never stood a chance neither team you know shot very well but i think you look at south carolina they were able to get six more uh field goals because of those offensive rebounds. It actually was more lopsided in the first half, I'm realizing, but um, a tremendous win for the ladies. I think that's their second championship in school history. They had won in 2017. Um, so tremendous tournament for them. Destiny Henderson last night had 26 points. She made three threes. A lot of that damage was done in the first half, but South Carolina obviously holds on uh, really a tough game for UConn. They really couldn't find much rhythm offensively. Paige Becker's 14 points and six rebounds, just six of 13 from the field. So a tough loss for UConn, but you can bet that they'll be back um, in this similar spot next season. South Carolina, obviously, just, just dominant throughout the whole season, throughout the uh, tournament as well. Um, I think they were the most impressive team in the tournament, played with a lot of motivation and uh, cap it off with the championship. So congratulations to South Carolina. And the men had their uh, championship game tonight. North Carolina against Kansas. UNC obviously beating Duke once again in the Final Four, 81-77. That was a tremendous game, uh, kind of back and forth down the stretch. But UNC made enough shots to win the game. And then Kansas with a big win over Villanova really were never challenged. Um, in that game, that was a tremendous performance by Abaji. Made six threes in that game. David McCormick was unstoppable down low. And they got some really good guard play. Uh, Remy Martin's been really good in the tournament. Maybe not so much against Villanova, but I think he's a guy who could really make a huge difference against UNC. But it's going to be a good game tonight. You know, I think uh, these are two teams that can rebound the ball really well. And that could decide the game. You know, I think it's going to come down to the guard play. You know, which group of guards plays better? You know, is it Davis and Love for UNC? Or is it... You know, someone like Abaji, who I think had struggled for the majority of this tournament, has really turned it on in his last two games, and I think he could be a big difference in this game. But I think 
you know, it's the bigs that I think could make a difference. UNC, if they shoot the lights out, they could win this game. You know, I think you look at what Brady Manick has done in this tournament. He seems like he's knocked down every single three that he's attempted. Um, but I think if they can knock down threes, they could stretch the floor. They could give Kansas some issues. But I think, you know, Kansas is a team that wants to get up and down the floor. Um, curious to see what uh, Armando Baycott looks like in this game. He suffered an ankle injury. Um, in the second half against Duke. So I expect Kansas to win, but I don't think UNC is a team that's going to, you know, lie down. They're going to be a team that's highly motivated. You know, I think they've been highly motivated, you know, really ever since beating Duke in that Coach K's final game. And they've, you know, turned it up in the tournament. I think that they've actually been the most impressive team in the tournament. You know, Kansas has been really good the last two games. Um, but UNC's been on fire pretty much the entire tournament. So curious to see how this game turns out. I think Kansas wins, but I think it's going to be a really good game. So definitely tune into that. It is a 9-20 tip. Yes, I said 9-20. That's not a misprint. It's a little frustrating, I think, for some of us on the East Coast, who I think would rather watch the game at, you know, 8 o'clock. But, you know. The uh, NCAA wants to get as many viewers as they possibly can, so starting a game at 9 works better for the West Coast people. Um, and hey, if you're on the East Coast, you don't feel like staying up, you can always tape it. You can always record it. Wow, I can't believe I just said tape it, but you could record it, <laughs> watch it later. So uh, looking forward to that game tonight. So just to kind of close out the pod today... Some uh, update on the NBA standings. I know we took a look at the East standings right now. So we'll just do kind of a quick little update here. You know, assuming that these standings stay the same, the Celtics would be playing either the Cavaliers or the Hawks. The Heat would be playing the Nets or the Hornets. You would see the Bucks against the Raptors and the Sixers against the Bulls. But obviously a lot can change. These are not going to be the final standings. I can almost guarantee you that um, in the Western Conference, it's a little bit less convoluted. Phoenix is in first. They will finish first. Memphis is in second. They're locked into the second seed. And then you have Golden State and Dallas. Um, that might change the three or four. Denver, the fifth. And then Utah, the sixth. That could change as well. Minnesota, the seventh seed. They're the first play-in team. And then the Clippers, the Pelicans, and the Spurs with the Lakers two games behind with four games to go. So they're in pretty dire straits uh, right now for their season. They may miss the playoffs entirely, which is pretty wild to say. I never thought it would have said that uh, at any point this season, you know, especially early on when, you know, the Lakers were legitimate title contenders. And now they are, you know, most games they could win this season is 35, and they may still miss the play-in. So just pretty wild how that works. Uh, we'll take a look over at the NHL standings. It is official that the Carolina, or the, excuse me, the Florida Panthers are the first team to clinch a playoff berth with their win yesterday against the Buffalo Sabres. Um, speaking of the Buffalo Sabres, there was a note that I wanted to make that the Sabres' uh, longtime 
TV announcer Rick Jenneret announced his retirement, or I think it was a game honoring his retirement. Um, he's a guy who a lot of people may not know who he is, but I think when I've watched, you know, Buffalo Sabres highlights, you know, when I've watched NHL highlights for years, um, always heard his voice, a really, uh, really distinct voice, you know, and he's a guy who I think has been around for a very long time. He's had some amazing, you know, goal calls throughout his career. So I just thought I'd say something about about him and happy happy retirement. Um, the Islanders with the win last yesterday against the Devils. Corey Schneider returning for the, or excuse me, Corey Schneider winning his um, first start since returning to the NHL. I think he'd been out of the league for a few years, thanks to some injuries. Um, the Senators won yesterday. Josh Norris got his first career hat-trick, and he's up to 30 goals on the season. So we'll take a look at the standings, and then actually I want to take a look at some uh, statistics as well. So in the Metro, you have Carolina with... 98 points. And then you have the Rangers in second with 94. And then Pittsburgh in third with 92 in the Atlantic. Florida, as we mentioned, first team to clinch a playoff berth. Their playoff berth. They're also the first team in the Eastern Conference to top 100 points. And they do believe that there are going to be a couple teams that are going to get over the century mark. You know, may may even be every single team except Washington um, in the East. So that will be kind of wild to watch. Uh, Toronto is currently in second, followed by Tampa. Toronto has the tiebreaker because of regulation wins. But both of these teams play each other tonight. So it'll be interesting to see. It'll be interesting to see if that changes. <clears throat> And then you have the Bruins in the first wild card position, followed by Washington. So at the moment, the Bruins would be matched up to play Carolina. But obviously, that could change. And then Washington would be lined up to play Florida. So in that scenario, the Bruins would fall into the Metropolitan playoffs. Um, and Washington would go into the Atlantic, which Carolina is not really a team the Bruins would want to play. But I do think the Bruins kind of match up okay against them. I know that... That's probably an insane thing to say because the Hurricanes, I think, beat the Bruins like 16-1 to 1, where the com was the combined score of all three games. But, you know, I don't know. I think a couple of those games were uh, before the before the new year. So I don't know if I take a lot of stock, you know, in that. But I think it may not be the worst opponent. It may not be the worst opponent for the Bruins to play. Well, actually, no. It might, actually, it might be, but... Whatever, you know, I think the Bruins just are not in a position where they can kind of dictate who they're going to play. You know, it's kind of just going to fall how it's going to fall. Um, and that will be, yeah, just it's going to be what it's going to be. In the Western Conference, Colorado leads the NHL with 104 points. They're actually leading the President's Trophy race two points ahead of Florida. So they're in first in the Central. And then Minnesota in second, St. Louis in third. In the Pacific, Calgary in first, LA second and then Edmonton in third, and then in the wild card, you have Nashville 
in Vegas with the advantages. Winnipeg, or excuse me, Dallas is a point behind Vegas with three games in hand, and Winnipeg is six points back with one game in hand. So it doesn't look great for Winnipeg, but it looks pretty good for, for Dallas. Um, but Vegas has won five in a row, so maybe they are starting to figure things out. So it'll be an interesting race to follow over the next few weeks as we get closer and closer to the playoffs. So I think that probably does it for me today. Um, I will put out the hashtag later on Twitter, hashtag AskNYABSP, and you can submit questions, and I'll try to answer them on Guest Friday this week. That's what we're doing in place of a guest. So the uh, questions, the people who ask questions, they can be the guests uh, in, in, in a way. Uh, so, yeah, definitely would love to hear from the, the, the listeners uh, what uh, questions you guys have. Um, so you can ask it. You can ask it on any social platform. You know, I'll put the announcement out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So you can send me a DM on Instagram. You can uh, message me on Facebook. You could message the podcast on Facebook. You can obviously respond to the tweet. You can, you know, DM me in, on my personal account. You can DM the uh, podcast account as well. Um, and yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. Enjoy the rest of your week. And we will be back with a special edition of Guest Friday later this week.